Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. Good morning. Okay, so my name is Nick Allen. I get to be the campus pastor of this location of Rolling Hills. I'm really glad that you're here today. I'm really excited about the college graduates, Um, more so because of the fact that you're staying in Nashville um, than I would be if you were graduating and going to other places, because we just want to keep you guys. And so thanks for being here. Thanks for letting us celebrate with you. If you're a first-time guest this morning, somebody that I haven't had the pleasure of meeting before, I hope that I get to today before you leave. At the conclusion of the service, don't forget, I'll be at the back at a banner that says welcome, and uh, we would love to meet you today. We've got a new gift for you to take home before you leave. Don't miss it, because it's good, and uh, you don't want to miss out on that. I'm so glad that you guys are here today. We're in week two of a 16-week series, and so all summer long, while various ones of us are putting our toes in sand and taking pictures of it because we've been at the beach, you can continue to tune in each week as we go through the book of Romans. It's called Masterclass, and I don't want you to be overwhelmed by that. I don't want you to be afraid of it. I have had not one but many conversations this week with folks who are like, I'm a little intimidated to go through the book of Romans because it seems like a really big book. It seems like a really complicated book. It seems like a book that's incredibly deep, and it does have a lot of rich meaning, but, but one singular message that I think that we'll uncover together. Now, you guys got a really great, the graduates in the room got a great gift from Brandon and Marty earlier. I've got a gift, too, today for you before you leave. Um, it's actually a Dr. Seuss book called Sneetches and Other Stories. Now, this time of year, another book sale skyrockets. You know what it's called. It's by Dr. Seuss. It's called Oh, the Places You'll Go. It's the number one selling Dr. Seuss book of all time. And you're thinking, oh, it's probably Green Eggs and Ham. It's probably um, Horton Hears a Who. It's probably one of the many other masterful works of Dr. Seuss. No, it's that one. And it's really because of graduation sales. People love to give this book to people when they graduate from things like fifth grade. I don't know why we do a graduation ceremony for you, but it's a big accomplishment. So you go up to, oh, eighth grade graduation. It's such a big deal. High school graduation, that actually is a big deal. And then college graduation, we're really celebrating. You guys probably have four copies of, oh, the places you'll go somewhere because multiple people have bought it for you. Well, me, I do it a little different. I got you Sneetches and Other Stories. It's a lesser known book, actually a collection of stories. And these are simple but they have really deep meaning. I think a lot of times we look at books like that, like, oh, that's a really thick book, but it's a really singular meaning. Oh, that's a really small kid's story, but it's really deep. And I'll read you one this morning. It's called 
too many Daves. I should do this with an accent, but I'm not. Okay, so did I ever tell you that Mrs. McCabe had 23 sons and she named them all Dave? That is so much. Like, the parents in the room were overwhelmed. Like, 23 kids in general, much less 23 boys. Look, they're all going wild, as boys tend to do. Like, nuts. And this woman named every single one of them Dave. And it says, well, she did, and that wasn't a smart thing to do, you think. You see, when she calls one and shouts out, you who, come into the house, Dave, she doesn't get one. All 23 Daves of hers come on the run. And I'm afraid for her life. Like, I'm like, 23 boys literally coming to tackle this frail woman. How do I know she's frail? Because she had 23 children. That's why she's frail. This makes things quite difficult at the McCaves, as you can imagine, with so many Daves. And often she wishes that when they were born, she'd name one of them Bodkin Van Horn. And one of them Hoosfoos, and one of them Snim, and one of them Hotshot, and one Sunny Jim. And one of them Shadrach, and one of them Blinky, and one of them Stuffy, and one of them Stinky. I'd like to be the kid that got that name. Another one Putt-Putt, another one Moonface, another one Marvel O'Gravel Balloon Face, and one of them Ziggy, and one Soggy Muff, and one Buffalo Bill, and one Biffalo Buff, and one of them Sneepy, and one Weepy Weed, and one Paris Garters, and one Harris Tweed, and one of them Sir Michael Carmichael Zutt, and one of them Oliver Bolivar Butt, and one of them Zanzibar Buck Buck McFate, but she did not do it, and now it's too late. And the story just kind of ends right there, in this land of regret, like, hey, I wish I could have, but I didn't, and now it's too late. This summer, I, I don't want you to regret not diving into this series with both feet, like in the deep end of the swimming pool, just going as hardcore as you can into the book of Romans, because what we would regret is not diving into this book to understand the thing that it means. That simple little story with all the funny rhyming words is a wake-up call for anybody who realizes that something might be too late and the regret that would loom after it and we're diving into a really deep theological work full of 16 chapters that has a singular message that matters for us. And the singular message that matters for us is that this is the gospel of God. That he has good news for us in spite of our sin. And we get to dive into that week after week after week. I've been reading a book uh, to prepare for this series, and it's called Reading Romans Backwards. And you guessed it, we're actually starting in chapter 16 and going all the way back to chapter 1. Because if you read chapter 16 and know that eventually we're on the way to getting to a chapter in the book where Paul gives a who's who yearbook list of names, people that have helped the gospel go out. And when you realize who those people are and the specifics of their story, it makes all 15 chapters that precede it that much more special. And we're going to zero in on one today because I can't ignore the fact that in Romans chapter 16, starting with verse 1, it says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Sincre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. There is wide scholarship that recognize Phoebe as the deliverer of this letter to the church in Rome. And that would have been significant. A, she's a woman. B, scripture calls her a deacon in the church in Sincre. And that matters. And this is the reason why it matters. The word diakonos in scripture, the Greek language means servant. And that's great. It was used universally for men and women in this time period. But not only that, who were leaders in the church. The fact that she was a deacon attached to a specific church of Sincre, what it meant was that she was a leader. She was recognized and respected. And she held office in the life 
of that church. It's okay that we're going to pause before we dive into Romans chapter 2 and talk about the fact that this letter was delivered by a woman in the early church because we want to zero in on the fact that women are affirmed, women are used, women are useful in ministry. As the deliverer of this letter, she would have very likely also have been the reader of it. The person that was called to stand in front of all of the house churches in Rome and be the person that read these words out loud so that when people heard the words of the Apostle Paul for the first time, when they heard the letter that he had specifically addressed to all of the house churches in Rome, they would have heard it through the voice of a woman. They would have heard it and seen it with the expressions on her face, and she would have been the one that did the Q&A after it if they had any questions about the content inside that matters not only as the deliverer and the messenger she would have been the reader we also know that phoebe was a gentile no jewish heritage and this is how because phoebe who's one of my favorite characters from friends is a greek name and it means bright light and and you think well that fits well it, it certainly fits the phoebe character from friends maybe it fit this phoebe too but it's named after Phoebus Apollos, the god of the sun. No Jewish family would have named any of their kids a son or a daughter after one of these Roman or Greek gods. So here's a Gentile girl in the life of the church who is a minister of the gospel. Scripture calls her a deacon. We also know that she had money. And some of y'all are like, well, now you got my attention, Phoebe. We know that she had money because scripture calls her a benefactor, which is not a normal word that I use in sentences. It means a person who gives money or help to a person or a cause. And she gave money and help to lots of people, lots of causes, including Paul. And he writes that she should be recognized and treated in a manner worthy. And so what I want to say about this early church, about this group of people that have gathered in order to hear the words of Paul, when we engage the epistles, this is in your notes this morning if you're a person that likes to write things down so that you don't fall asleep and so that you can remember some of them later. When we engage the epistles, these are letters of instruction. These are letters that are written. It's not a textbook that we have to be afraid of like biology or microbiology or any of the other ologies like this is not a textbook to be read although we treat it like that in our modern mindset this is a letter that was delivered from one person to a people and it gives us instructions what are we as believers in Jesus Christ to be what is it that we as believers in Jesus Christ must know and what is it that we as believers in Jesus Christ must do these be no do statements susan and i encountered them when we started seminary 20 many years ago right at the outset they gave us this long list of be no do statements and asked that question regardless of background regardless of history because we come to faith in Christ from different perspectives. Some people grew up in the life of the church, go into things like vacation Bible school or Sunday school. I don't know why we named everything after school back in those days, but thankfully we've moved that word off of the table. Like you grew up hearing these stories. We called it Southern Baptist. That's how I, so I come to faith in Jesus Christ with a certain lens, with a certain tradition. A lot of people came to faith in Jesus Christ through the universal Catholic church. And so they come to faith in Christ with a different tradition, with a different background, with a different history, with a different lens. Some people come to Christ as adults with no background, no history, no lens with which to speak of 
which in and of itself is a lens of which to speak of. Like you come to faith in Christ in a different way, at a different time, with a different viewpoint. So what are the things that regardless of our lenses, regardless of our viewpoints, regardless of our backgrounds, that we're all supposed to be? What's the common thread that all believers in Jesus Christ who affirm his salvation, what is it that we need to know? What are the essentials that we look like and that we do as a people like this is what we come for and that's what these letters these epistles were for they were to believers in Rome and they experienced these words for the first time and it was the voice in the face of a woman named Phoebe who brought it the whole goal of the book of Romans sit right here you don't have to come back for the next 14 weeks I'm just kidding please come back for the next 14 weeks is lived theology that somehow or another we would understand what it means to be a person who has faith in Jesus Christ and that we would embody that to the world, that other people might see it. Last week we read Romans chapter 1 and it says, to all in Rome, all means all. It means women like Phoebe and also men. It, it means Jews like Paul, but also Gentiles like Phoebe. It meant slaves and free, those who were not Roman citizens, who were invited to be indoctrinated into the way of Rome, and then also those who had Roman citizenship and walked around as free people in the empire. It meant men, women, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. It meant rich people, and it meant poor people. It was a diverse audience of folks who heard these words, and what they understood is that to all in Rome who are loved by God, Everybody in Rome, regardless of your background, regardless of your heritage, regardless of your viewpoint, who come to faith in Jesus Christ, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. All y'all, regardless of your background, regardless of your history, regardless of your tradition, regardless of what you financially and physically and historically bring to the table, welcome. You're loved by God through Jesus. This is why we're here, and everything that follows is going to help you live out that faith. When we talk about Christianity, it's a word that we use, right? Christianity. What we ultimately mean is Christoformity. When we talk about Christianity, what we mean is Christoformity, like Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. My dear children, men, women, rich, poor, Jew, Greek, slave, free, everybody, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And, and it's the Greek word morphu, and it means to be metamorphosis. It's where we get that idea of transformation. It's the word that we'll see in Romans chapter 12 later on this summer when we get there, that we are not supposed to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that ultimately we can live and look and act like Jesus, Scott McKnight, who wrote that book, Reading Romans Backwards, he's a seminary professor and teacher and writer. He says, in Christ, you are not to act according to privilege and power, to elective status and history, not according to the lens that you brought to the table, but instead you are to love your neighbor by offering your entire body daily to God, to live as siblings, siblings, brother and sisters with all other Christians by welcoming one another and eating at the table with each other and indwelling one another. And you are to love your Roman neighbor, not just your regular neighbor, not just your Christian neighbor, not just the person who affirms the same faith in Jesus as you, but your Roman neighbor, the person who absolutely rejects 
faith in Christ. You're to regard that neighbor as yourself with civility and intentional acts of benevolence, generosity, and love. Only in this way can peace be found in Rome. Rome was famous for a slogan called Pax Romana, and it was the idea that we were going to usher peace into the entire world, and that peace was going to come through conquering and conforming. That we were going to conquer people and then conform them into the image of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. And this message, Scott McKnight writes, that sums up Paul's words, is that Jesus is to be so formed in you that you treat all others, even your enemy others, like a neighbor, like a sibling. Is it significant that the person who was reading these words to the audience in Rome was a female? While Jewish people for all generations had affirmed and valued and treated with dignity their women, it was the pagan cultures that used women as property. And to that group of people, Paul writes, Phoebe is your sister. No longer are women to be second-class citizens in Rome. If we really want to talk about what's going to bring peace in Rome, we're going to elevate the oppressed. We're going to treat people with dignity, not just people that are like you, people that affirm you, but all people. So as with any communication, and that goes for the communication that we engage in today, especially these epistles, however, we got to understand who the letter's talking to and who it's talking about. Paul spent chapter one, and a lot of us are always really alarmed by chapter one because it's this whole list of every kind of sin. He spends a lot of chapter one building a case against the world of pagan sinners. It's, it's scary to read, and when it's used in isolation, there's another famous pastor in America who's called Romans chapter one a clobber passage because isolated, it's used to abuse people, it's used to clobber people, it's used to identify people, and it's used to single out specific sins and specific types of sinners. And in some ways, if you read chapter one in isolation, you're right on board, but then when you read it in the context of all of this letter and in all of the New Testament, you see that Paul's just trying to get the attention of his real target. Imagine hearing these words that day from Romans chapter 1. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. I love the fact that the Apostle Paul, in his letter, wrote of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and disobeying your parents in the same degree. <laughs> this morning during the nine o'clock service, I zeroed in on this one particular section of the auditorium where my teenage daughters sit, and I said, I'm really glad that the Apostle Paul included disobeying your parents with sins like envy, murder, malice, and strife to know the severity of what it meant to be a sinner. Paul is building a case against every kind of sin. And if you continue to read through chapter one, you know that he zeroes in very explicitly on sexual sin. And there would have been people in this audience hearing Phoebe's words who moved forward in their seats, who puffed up their shoulders and looked around the rest of the room. And probably if any of them had a Southern Baptist background or vantage point or view to which they came to Christ, they would have said, amen. <laughs> Preach, get it girl. Like, come on Phoebe, tell us what it's, Tell us what Paul really said. And they would have been so proud and so arrogant. I am so glad that you are bringing this up. Like, I'm so glad that in the church of Rome today, we are identifying all of that sin and all of those sinners. Imagine being those people, looking around, saying, come on, preacher. And then hearing the transition 
that happened in chapter 2. You, therefore, starting at verse 1, have no excuse. And the word excuse is the word anapologetos, and it's where we get the word, well, not an apologetic. An apologetic is a defense. It's not an apology. It's somebody who can make a reasonable defense for the case of what this word says and what it means. So an anapologetic is somebody who has no excuse or no defense. You people can make no excuse, no defense. You have no leg to stand on because you pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Woe there. I was all excited, Sister Phoebe, when you read all those words about malice, when you read all those words about murder, when you read all those words about gossip and envy and strife. And I was very glad because my kid was sitting right here that you read words about disobeying parents. I was also exceedingly glad when you took that in a whole sexual direction and talked about all of the sin that people experience in the world. And now you're going to turn the finger right back at me and say, woe to you who judge another. It says in verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God's judgment against those and all those sins in chapter 1 is legitimate and it's based on truth. But then it says, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? If you're going to underline a word in your passages of Scripture, underline it here, because that word repentance is an enormous clue as to what not only this whole passage is about, but what all of Scripture is about. All of these thoughts about sin, whether it's the sins of the pagan world or the sins that are in our legitimately confused Christian hearts, we are to understand that every single conversation about those, every single condemnation of of those is not to lead us to pass judgment on somebody who commits those, but to lead us to a posture and a platform of repentance. The idea of God's kindness is goodness to, goodness to us regardless of our past sin. That all those things that we've done in our past lives, God's not going to hold against us. The idea of his forbearance it is God's kindness to us in our present lives because in a moment where because of our current, present, right now, in my thought life and in my word life and in my action life, those things that are separating me from God, all the wrath could be turned. And he holds that back out of grace and mercy. This is God's kindness to us. And then his patience, his long-suffering when we recognize that we are a people who have fallen short of his glory and that every single one of us is sinners, that's foreshadowing to what we're going to experience when we go to Romans chapter 3. Every single one of us, all those pagan people in chapter 1 that are crazy, ridiculous sinners, but then also all of you within the church who are passing judgment on them, crazy, ridiculous sin, every single one of you needs to recognize in repentance that it's the grace and it's the mercy and it's the goodness of God that is withholding not only the punishment that they deserve, but the punishment that we all deserve. And then it says in verse 5, because of your stubbornness, that means hardness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. It says in verse 6 that God will pay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. And now the audience shrinks the sound of Phoebe's voice and at the sound of her reading Paul's words 
Because what they recognize and affirm is that, yeah, if people can actually seek glory and live honorably, they will inherit eternal life. The problem is none of them can. Paul's recognizing, yeah, if you can absolutely do it perfectly, sure, you're going to earn for yourself eternal life. The problem is that none of them has. Every single audience member is on the same sinking ship. It says, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, murder, malice, and disobeying your parents, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being does evil. First for the Jew, he's saying, you guys haven't escaped. You are included in all of this. And then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And what we're going to see over and over and over again in this book is a common message that no one fully obeys the law. It says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. What Paul says in Romans 2.14 is that a Gentile, although by nature, just because he's put some sort of goodness, some sort of opportunity to recognize who he is on every single human heart, some sort of moral code where we don't want to do all that murder and all that envy and all that malice and all that disobeying your parents, if they by nature can do some of the things the law requires, that's awesome. But notice that he doesn't say fulfill the law because there's no way, even if they do some of the things that the law requires, that they can do absolutely everything that the law requires. It says in verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences are also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accuse them. You see, they do make mistakes and at other times defend them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now you, who's this passage of scripture talking about? You who call yourself a Jew, who's this passage of scripture talking to? I want to say that it's okay. Because any of us who are coming to the table with any of our past understanding and our specific vantage points and views about what it means to be a Christian, what you have to know as a Christian, what you should do as a Christian, it's okay for the Bible to say, saved by grace and judged by works. This is not a contradiction of terms. We're not reading Romans chapter 2 a part of the rest of Romans, and we're not reading the book of Romans apart from the rest of the scriptures, both old and new. Salvation by grace and judgment of works are consistent with one another, and they're featured in Old and New Testaments without any hesitation, and also by all of Judaism and by Jesus himself. Scott McKnight wrote this, grace that's reciprocated with a gift is still grace. That thank you card that you're going to get in the mail from the college students that we gave gifts to this morning, right? You're going to get a thank you card. Like, if your mama raised you right, okay. That thank you card doesn't nullify the generosity. That act of obedience to God because of God being good doesn't nullify. It doesn't make his grace less. That act of return doesn't change how good the gift is. The overwhelming challenge addressed by so much of the New Testament being what it looks like to be a Christian, what a Christian acts like, what they believe, 
in a lot of ways, circled the drain about how Jewish a person had to be to live out their faith in Christ. And within all of the believers in Rome, among the men and the women, among the rich and the poor, you had both Gentiles and Jews. And among the Jews, you had those who were Torah committed, those who had memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those who were committed to those words, those who understood those as to be the defining characteristic of a person who had come to a new saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so anybody who came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ outside of their understanding of what those Torah rules and restrictions were was somehow less than in terms of belief, was somehow not living up to the full faith of their potential. Paul is talking to a group of Torah Christians who want to create a lot of rules for new believers. In some ways, he's addressing a crowd of Pharisees like Jesus did in Luke 18. It says in Jesus' words, to some who were confident of their own righteousness, key word confident, and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector, and I'm sure Jesus also meant to say people who disobey their parents. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus looked at that crowd and said, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Phoebe, standing in front of multiple house churches of people, understanding that there were some in that room who thought in order to be like Christ you got to be Jewish like me the ones who were on the edge of their seat saying come on Phoebe get it Paul as they read the list of all the pagan sins in chapter one are now feeling sheepish like the Pharisees in Luke 18 because Paul like Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy I want to say this, more than just on a message like today, but on a message like any day, that convictions, those are the things we bring to the table. And sometimes our convictions are rooted in Scripture, and they are undeniable. They are the things that this word says that we, in accordance to our faith, submit our lives to and determine that we will live out. They are biblical convictions. But some of the convictions that we have, we don't know where they came from. And the reason we don't know where they came from is because they didn't come from here. They come from our history. They come from our tradition. They come from the way that we were raised. Those convictions... Whenever we use those as a condition of somebody else, it's a contradiction to the gospel. And we want to hold them to a standard of rules outside of relationship that we ourselves are not willing to submit to. And it's not the gospel of good news. It's not the gospel of good news that we have in Jesus that welcomes us and invites us and forgives us of the big old laundry list of pagan sins that are in chapter one and also of the judgmental, evil, prideful heart that lives inside those of us who think that we've got it all 
figured out. Paul's writing to Rome, but in this chapter, he's specifying a group of people who think that they're on the advanced side of faith. Those Gentile Christians were at some sort of theological disadvantage. It's a play on the weak and the strong. And all throughout the book of Romans, we'll encounter that. The difference between weak faith and strong faith and the people who thought that they were strong and had it all figured out were actually coming to the table as the weaker brother. We're accountable to God. It's in your notes. We're all accountable to God, who is the just and impartial judge. It says in chapter 2, verse 6, that God's going to repay every person according to what they've done. It says in verse 16, it's going to take place on the day that God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as the gospel declares. And then it says in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. We come to the table, we bring with us a viewpoint, an advantage that says judgment is always part of salvation. That somehow or another, whenever there's judgment, it's saying, you get in, you don't get in. You get in, you don't get in. You get in, but barely. You get in, and actually, I'm rethinking that. You don't get in. Like, we look at judgment as if it's the requirement of salvation. Judgment, as it's explained in out the Old Testament and the New Testament, is a picture of evil being vanquished in the world and eliminated from it. What we ought to understand is that the day of judgment is a good day because God is literally going to rid the world of all evil, and he's not going to rid just the world of all evil. He's going to finally, once and for all, rid our hearts of evil so that the things that live there, the murder and the envy and the malice and the strife and the, oh my goodness, the disobedience that's in there, that remains even though we don't want it to, he's going to take it away. And Christ will fully and finally be formed in each one of us. And we won't have to wrestle back and forth with the wretched sin in our lives anymore. Who needs to know that? Who needs to know that God's a fair and impartial judge? Not just the ones who are on the outside who know that they don't measure up, but the ones who think that they're on the inside and that they never have to submit for all of us. Is there somehow in this book, in this specific passage, a contemporary application for us? Absolutely. It's that word we underlined, repentance. It says in verse 25, going through nearly the end of the chapter, Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. Circumcision was the outward symbol of the Old Testament covenant. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? I'm going to say the word circumcised far more in the next few verses than I'm comfortable with. Please recognize that even though my voice does not sound like Phoebe, these are Paul's words, not mine. <laughs> says the one who's not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker and then it says these miraculous words a person is not a jew who is only one outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical no a person is a jew who is one inwardly and circumcision 
that cutting, that separation, that, that, that usefulness for God's kingdom is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written faith. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. You didn't know that if you're sitting here this morning and you are in Christ, you have repented of your sins, you have been forgiven of your debt, and even though you continue to walk back and forth in your own sinful nature, you know that past, present, and future, once and for all, you have been forgiven. You are Jewish. You, like me, didn't get a bar mitzvah. That means that you didn't get a giant 13th birthday party with a carnival in your name. You also did not have, to be fair, walk around an entire temple and recite the Torah, so kind of a wash. But it means we get to be a part of God's family, that we get to be a chosen people. The setup in chapter one offers us a reminder in chapter two of who gets to be included in the family of God and why any of us even have a hope of inclusion. It's because of Jesus. Fast forward to chapter 14, and it says, we need to stop passing judgment on one another. That idea of judgment is going to continue to follow us from chapter 2, verse 1, to nearly the end of the book. We need to make up our mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. Romans is a really large thread about power. It's a really large thread about privilege. It's a really large thread about who's included. And the gospel always confronts us there. It's not too late to grab your copy of Romans. It's not too late to dive into the summer journal. It's not too late to evaluate the lens that you bring to the table called faith and make sure that it aligns with the gospel goodness of Jesus. We don't want to be those people who live with regret at the end of the summer. We also don't want to be a people who live with regret at the end of our lives, knowing that sin separates us from God, but in his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, he gave us Jesus and he gave us mercy as a way to know that we can be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place. Help us as we encounter these words this summer to be a people who bring fresh eyes, fresh views, fresh layers of submission and understanding to the good news gospel that you have given us to be a people who recognize fully God, that we're only included because of Jesus. We are only invited because of Christ. We are only welcomed because of your love. And in turn, be a people who instead of labeling and addressing all the evils of the pagan world, are a folk who are so excited about the grace that we've been given that we graciously offer it instead. Help us to be a people who communicate the good news of Jesus and realize that any of us are only ever at this table because of him. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.